0: so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.
1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Pierre Delancin. The figure of the Bohemian artist addict plagues our art historical imagination. Artists from Byron to Amy Winehouse are recognised not only for the work, but also for the connection with drugs. Such artists' premature deaths seem to fuel our interest in what the relationship to drugs may have been. I myself recall learning in my very early teens about the Polish avant-garde writer and painter witkaczy whose portraiture work of the 1920s was priced according to the strength of the drugs, under the influence of which it was created. The drug consumption, in my young mind, was part of the artist's very brand. More recently, when I worked as a representative of a contemporary artist who has now sadly passed, I had to contend with the biographical detail that echoed in the works. It was never obvious whether the line I'm a junkie was spoken by a character or by the artists themselves. Addiction, and specifically opioid addiction, has a much darker side of course, and one that looms much larger than any romantic idea of a creative high. Such addiction can be studied in many ways, medically, sociologically, economically or statistically. But there are aspects of opiate addiction that can only be represented and understood through art. The compulsion, the rush, the withdrawal. Communions, a new book by Adam Lehrer, is an attempt to understand the role that opiates play in the lives of those who are gripped by addiction. The book is a series of conversations with artists, all of whom were opiate addicts and all of whom have now passed. It is in part a fictional memoir, part the author's conversation with some of his favourite writers, artists and musicians, and in part a work of art criticism. Finally, it's a reflection on the epidemic of addiction that has steamrolled through the US in the past two decades. Adam Lehrer is a writer and art critic, but he's also a former heroin addict himself. His career has been as full of ups and downs as those of his heroes. His own story resonates throughout his encounters with artists that range from Dash now to Philip Seymour Hoffman and Jean-Michel Basquiat. Adam, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much, Pierre. It's great to be here.
2: Well, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, Adam, I was attracted to your book for a couple of reasons. One is the fact that we have a couple of friends in common. Um, But another, which is more important, is the fact that what you try to tackle in this book is something that I think would be quite difficult to achieve in any other format in any way other than than through an artistic practice. We normally like to ask authors to introduce themselves a little bit and to explain how they came to do the kind of work and research that they end up presenting in the books. But I think for you, the question is much more fundamental. And so I want to ask you how it is that you became a writer and specifically a writer interested in art?
1: Sure. My career is really chaotic and all over the place and honestly the last year and a half is the first real success i've ever had for a long time after grad school at nyu i was interested in writing but i think i became more passionate about visual art at least that's what my Mm -hmm. aspiration was so for a few years i was uh, regularly practicing photography as well as other mixed media practices like video and collage. I did end up showing my work a few times, but it just never panned out. And I don't think I ever had that moment with art where I kind of felt totally in command of the work. Um, Writing was something that I was doing pretty much forever, but I felt... It was difficult. I had this chip on my shoulder, like, because <laughs> I had this idea about, like, what an artist was. Hmm. And it took a long time for me to see the way that I wrote as this kind of art practice. But I was doing, like, exhibition reviews, record reviews, stuff like that. And then I took a full-time job at a, at a museum that was pretty... Mm -hmm. I mean, it was fine, but it wasn't it was horrible, you know, and I had no time to like uh, basically do an art practice anymore. But I did have time to write because my job was very it was very like long hours wise, but very not a whole lot of actual work, you Mm -hmm. know, just kind of standing and sitting around. So I started writing obsessively. All sorts of stuff on my phone or on my laptop at lunch, and then late into the hours of the night at home. And it suddenly became like a very addictive thing. And I could feel myself getting good, you know, like that feeling of like, like when you're reading back something that you've done and you're like quite impressed by how it sounds, especially when you read it out loud. Like, I always, (laughs) when I edit my work, I read it out loud, you know? And um, I could just tell that there was, like, an aesthetic forming that wasn't actually disconnected from the aesthetic that I was sort of achieving in visual art prior. It was kind of like a collagist aesthetic, deconstructed, but still, um, like, non-academic and easy to read, but at the same time a little surreal. Yeah, I was, like, doing stuff for different companies, like The Quietus and... Filthy dreams and Ocher magazine and all these places, and it was um it was getting better then the pandemic happens, and that just freed up all my time and uh as much as I hated it and thought the lockdowns were absurd and all that, I can't say that it was unuseful to me because that time became incredibly valuable, hmm. and so I was just like writing constantly. In that window of time is when uh, my association with DC Miller became up for debate and the quietest fired me with a truly absurd letter where they dared to call me. Well, I should say not they, uh, John Duran, the editor. The other guys are okay. They're, you know, they're not, but John Duran, I'll say it on the record, horrible guy. Um, But he called me. He called me, uh, quote unquote, Hitler with a better record collection. I'm not sure if he knew that I was Jewish or not. I
2: mean, it seems like a compliment to me, at least half of that. (laughs) Um,
1: So anyway, so what I did was I when that happened, I wrote a revenge letter of sorts that I, I I mean, I didn't frame it as a revenge letter, but, you know, that was a part of it. And that thing just went viral as all hell. You know, my little blog all of a sudden was getting hundreds of thousands of hits. The article was being shared all over the internet, and I think it summed up some things that a lot of <clears throat> people were feeling at the same time, but were perhaps too gun shy to actually talk about. You're
2: referring to your essay Um Art moral fetish, yes? Is that
1: that actually one? came later? Um, ah. This one was called uh, "Notes on My Severed Relationship with the Quietest" or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but that experience all of a sudden I had insane amounts of interest in my work more than I ever had prior and I think it kind of gave me an air of whatever mystique or authority on these subjects and then I wrote a few big essays that a lot of people read arts moral fetish of course being one of them which summed up kind of a lot of my thoughts even though I probably even evolved a little bit more since writing that Mm -hmm.
2: This is something I I want to recommend to our listeners. Like for anyone who still has any hope in the art world—not in art, but in the art world itself—and would like to lose it, this is a this is a must-read text. And I'll put a <laughs> put a link to this in 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 the show notes. And that that's indeed how I came across your writing first. So what you're describing here is um, super interesting, and I think it will become very clear in a moment why it's interesting for the book because you're describing some kind of kind of precarious. Existence of an artist living in a metropolis, there's this kind of trajectory of an art school, unstable employment, nothing is really as fulfilling. This is this is something that I think a lot of our listeners who understand how the art world works will will be able to sympathize with. Absolutely. And it's kind of disruptions like the pandemic that sometimes produce positives, like like they seem to have for you, not without necessarily the pain.
0: 100%. But this is the
2: kind of experience that comes up in a book as well. So I wonder yes. if, I could, if I could ask you to, to sort of write yourself into a book and be able to introduce what it is that Communions, your, your series of vignettes from lives of artists is, and how that possibly connects to, to, to your experience.
1: Absolutely. Well, Communions, okay, so it came about because I was doing this sort of um, experimental writing practice, and I would take famous philosophers, artists, etc. from history And I'd write these short stories where I'd write them in as characters into the modern world. Antonin Artaud is being canceled on Twitter and talking to his girlfriend, (laughs) Ozielia Banks, about it. You know, I have like a hundred of those kinds of stories. I've never published them, maybe will in the future. But it got me like thinking in this way of how I can give life to your sort of fascinations, fictionalize the things that you're fascinated and engaged by now on top of that at this point I would have been about 7 years off heroin and I had always wanted to do an addiction book I wanted to do an addiction book because for for many different reasons one simply I love the subgenre of like addiction novels whether it's like mm-hmm. brose or even more mass market stuff like Hubert Selby Jr., Irvine Welsh. Love all that stuff. Mm. But that posed me with a couple challenges because there was a few things I definitely did not want to do. One was write another like James Frey style addiction memoir because I just feel like that's been done to death and done much better than I could Mm. possibly do it. I also didn't want to do like train spotting Cape Cod, Massachusetts edition, you know, where I just sub in like, Wasters from where I grew up into the Edinburgh hmm. setting of train spotting. I didn't want to like lean into these kinds of cliches, but at the same time, I had a lot to say about this subject. And I did feel like it needed exercising. And then this amazing opportunity came up because Udith Matagoda, the publisher of Hyperidine Press, had become a fan of my work. And I had recently started my Substack project publishing company, Safety Propaganda, which he had been reading regularly, and he offered me a book deal. I think, though, that what they probably wanted when they first reached out was a collection of the texts and Mm -hmm. essays that I had already written. But I had had this idea. And the idea was, I'm going to write an addiction book about not just my addiction, And not just about opiate addiction in relation to the crisis we've been dealing with for some two decades now, but one that is basically me writing through the souls or spirits of dead writers, musicians, and artists who also were similarly afflicted with junk addiction. And I had it outlined and I had a list of people that I wanted to include in the book. And to my amazement, right away, Udith was Mm -hmm. like, wow, this sounds pretty great. And then it was a very quick process writing it, actually. Um, From from contract to first draft was only November 2020 to July 2021. So I, I banged this thing up quicker i think than a lot of people did <laughs> so it's quite a
2: few pretty pretty important things everybody that, you, that you've told us first of all this is there's a personal connection to to all of these stories you've yeah. talked earlier about your interest in the figure of the artist and i, I think maybe the f- best thing to do now would be to ask you to read one of the chapters from the book now so so our listeners get an idea of what it is that we're dealing with um and we agreed that you would read a chapter about Darby Crash. Yes, indeed. Punk musician, died at the age of 22.
1: Yes. So this chapter is actually one of my favorites. It's also the shortest in the book. It went through many edits as I was trying to figure out how to write it. Well, I love Darby Crash, and I actually think he was one of the greatest poets of the late 20th century. And I wanted to him to be celebrated in such a way But he's almost kind of such a caricaturized and mythical figure as it is to write it in the same way that I did a lot of these chapters, which would have been third-person fictionalization, Mm -hmm. I think could have been a bit dreary. What I did was I I wrote it almost as if it's a poem, a stream-of-consciousness poem that Mm -hmm. is being sort of delivered into his mind just after he took his fatal overdose. I'm incapacitated now. Slipping into the abyss. My mind, its architecture is eroding. I'm disintegrating. Why did I make this decision to close the loop on my five-year plan? You'll never know. You'll speculate. You'll rationalize and theorize Darby crashes, suicide, but that's it. Because I'm a legend and I'm a legend because I'm dead. As I lie here next to the last woman to ever want what I'd never give her, Everything is clear, clearer than normal. I'm sinking deeper. I'm falling fast, but I feel joy. I've known so little and I feel it now. With $400 worth of dope frying my central nervous system, I'm taking back control of my own narrative. I'm erecting myself as my own icon to my own cult. My flock can't abandon me now, as if I'd get old and boring and watch my legacy legacy wither and die as I age into a homeless, dope-addicted faggot. Please, not me. In death, I will be immortal. My triumph is my demise. I don't know how to change. The emptiness would have swallowed everything I created. I will not have that. Casey, she's getting blurrier. She said she wanted to die alongside me. I know that she was lying to herself, most of all. She wants to be written into my history and to have my legacy. She can't have it and neither can you. It belongs to no one and to everyone, but not to her and not to you. I'm dying now, but Paul died a long time ago. Perhaps he never lived. Maybe Paul is just the lingering confusion that never went away. I don't remember anymore. Perhaps then she had no chance of saving him. but me. Darby? Darby can't live without me either. I've been considering killing myself since I was a young boy. The sad, neglected boy. So banal, so ordinary, yet nothing ever filled that hole. The clothes, the persona, the brown and white powders. Nothing sustained me. That psychotic cunt of a mother, my dead brother, nothing. The abyss. I'm in it. Closer. They kicked me out of high school for antisocial behavior, quote unquote, mind control. Impressive, right? The scientists thought I was too cultish. Words are power. God is dead. The great manipulator understands this. Hitler's hate, Manson's family, Bowie's cathartic, joyful deviance. He was a genius, but am I? The great artists manipulate reality and people. A leader creates an image that can be projected onto. In art, fascism makes perfect sense. I don't hate or want to kill, but denial of Hitler is denial of creative will. I'm the true fascist, the manifestation of the will of my people. My words hypnotized. I created a new world. Spangler's circle, my circle. The germs burn. It's everything. But what is it? The great artists, the great manipulators, they break that cycle. I bent those around me to my own will and my will became theirs. But I, I could never change how I felt. Empty, unloved, pathetic, dirty. I fucking hate art. I believe in David Bowie, Iggy Pop and Charles Manson. He was, here was punk rock. It needed profits and I became one. He is called Darby Crash and Darby Crash was a symbol. The artist who hates art and wants to destroy it. Was it real? Heroin, speed, and booze buried me inside of Darby. Paul is Darby's parasite, and I'm its host. Fuck, there were parts of Paul that I could just never bury. Darby Crash was a tornado, and it sucked up everything in its path, and now I'm dying and dead. Darby needs followers. Followers need Darby. Your lives are meaningless now and henceforth. My lyrics screamed, my flesh desecrated and defiled. As Darby, I'm sanctified by violence. Paul was confused, alienated, fatherless, a sad, closeted fag. Everything that Paul experienced as pain, his mother's contempt and abuse, his real father's absence and fake father's death. Bobby was experienced by Darby as fuel. Pain was Darby's foundation. The burdens of Paul's soul hardened into Darby like a shield. In martyrdom, narrative becomes mythology. Darby crash forever, the germs forever, righteous excess forever. I'm exhausted. My pain and alienation as Paul allowed me to create Darby, but Darby still carried that pain and alienation. Language, he who wields it is in control, but of himself, I don't feel in control. Language is a virus, and I'm sick of hearing myself talk. Darby Crash, a sad little fag. The female anatomy is abject. Women are my mothers. The deeper that I sublimated into Darby, the further I alienated the family unit. I shot up more. My influence waned. I don't want to be a sad, washed up junkie tricking on Skid Row. I want the legend to live, so I must die. Elegant. A family unit. Or a cult Circularity. The decline of the West. There is no linear progression to culture, man. It's all fucking loops. What is my deeper reality? The deeper reality is that Darby Crash never escaped myself. I'm back at the beginning. Stuck once again with the same pain. Heroin numbs. Heroin exasperates. Who is listening? God, do you understand? Everything is getting dark. Thoughts are just thoughts, fleeting bits of information. For Darby, for quote unquote me, heroin made sense, a signifier of excess, but its utilitarianism cannot be underestimated. I have been terrified of my desire since I first felt it. I remember the first boner I got in gym class. Humiliation, it's poison. The terror, where did it come from? Why didn't Darby Crash free Paul to be a fag? why couldn't it be brandished as a weapon? My entire persona was built on the image of an outsider. And I repressed the thing that made me inherently so paranoia, fear, anxiety, sickness of the mind. You know, what? we can cut it there, actually. (laughs) It's a little longer than I thought.
2: Yeah, it's 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 fantastic that you chose this chapter from for me at least, because I watched last night with a little film club that I'm running, um, an adaptation of Dennis Cooper's Frisk filmed by Dennis Burrow oh, cool. from the mid-90s. So this whole idea of um a death drive. Which in in Cooper's, um, case is always you know part of the eroticism, part of the desire, but there's a
1: 100%. combination
2: of this kind of faggotry in, in the in the terms that you've just used and a death drive and the drugs. But to to maybe help our listeners understand what's happening in the book throughout, it's it's a series of ten vignettes along the lines like like you you've just read about yes. um, a variety of artists. Um, we we go from Zoe Lund, We go we have Dash Snow, some people I've never heard of, um, but but also John Coltrane, Anna Cavan, and so on. And these are bookmarked by um your reflections and essays, partly on writing about addiction. So so you yes. draw on virus quite a lot, and also reflection on the current pandemic, the oxycontin pandemic in, in the U.S. In
1: my own history, yeah.
2: And so yeah, I have I have two questions and I wonder where they they converge. So, so one, I think it's sort of sort of trivial, but but also unanswerable. One is like, what's the fascination in the twinning of addiction and the idea of an artist? That's something that we seem to be kind of completely preoccupied by. I mean, the the, the stories are fabrications, but also half of the artists that you write about have been mythologized as as junkies. Junk- yeah. Like that's something that we we seem to encourage and romanticize a little bit. And second, I wonder if you could maybe talk about your own experience and where your your idea of yourself as an artist, if at all, absolutely, with that.
1: Well, I think we've had a romantic notion of the fucked up, deviant, drug addict artist for. Since early modernism, at least, maybe even longer than that, but certainly with De Quincy, Baudelaire, etc., we want the people that create beautiful things to have sort of fucked up lives. Almost as if we know intuitively that people who live closer to death have insights. It's like they hmm. it's like we want them to be courageous enough to flirt with death so they can see what the things that we can't. Something like that. Uh, one of the things that I was really trying to demystify in the book was this idea of this like romantic junky thing. Because, first of all, it's like heroin is not like an impetus for creativity mm-hmm. at all. It's an incredibly brutal habit. It it shrinks your entire life down, and I talk about that in the Barrows chapter a lot is if it does give you sort of any insight it's not the this insight that we often think about with drugs which is like oh we're transcendent we get to see the cosmos in fact it it narrows your sensorial experience to such a small sort of circular loop that that's what you become aware of you do have sort of this kind of interesting perspective on the world because you're so trapped within a a narrowed control pattern but The idea that, like, it makes us more creative, I think, is false. I think Mm. what we do see in some points with someone like Burroughs or Artaud certainly is that these guys, um, certain kind of figures like this, they're so sort of druidic or like they're so sort of atypically, cosmically connected is that it becomes very difficult for them to actually zone in on reality enough to have these kind of insights that they ended up having. So I think for them, like they probably did see heroin to an extent as a way of like freezing themselves in place, being able to transmit all that psychic energy onto the page. And then aside from that, the other thing that I was mainly interested like the book is very much like an encrypted auto fiction Mm -hmm. because you know one of the more interesting things someone said to me was like even though you're writing in the voice of other people i can still hear you writing through them basically like these are your this is your bullshit you know like a lot of people for instance the dash snow chapter dash is the most recently dead person in the book and I know a ton of his friends, some of them very mm. well, and some of them, like his friend Nico, uh, his friend, one of his close friends, uh, said they loved the chapter on Dash and that I really understood what his central malaise was. Now, other people are saying this isn't Dash, this isn't who he was, mm. and the whole point is no shit, it's me projecting onto these. To these dead figures, you know, it's it, this is all my bullshit projected onto them. These are my addiction problems. And I'm sort of looking for things that I think are interesting or that make sense to me as these figures sort of conflicts and their anxieties. And that's sort of what I'm layering into the text.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com.
2: So I think the central paradox that you're describing here is partly, I think, this kind of romanticization drive and and partly just the impossibility of, of writing an, an account of addiction that take that goes all the way is that you can only ever write it if you survive. Yeah. So right. I mean you 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 have that perspective and and your experiences, from what I know, have been, you know, not necessarily pleasant all the time, to put it mildly. Um and I, I do not underestimate for a second the strength of of opiates addiction and i've you know like you i have i have had people around me who have succeeded and also not succeeded in in fighting it but I think that the kind of romanticization that you described i think it's an incredible plague that that goes beyond beyond a normal propensity to romanticize the artists yeah and so there's a couple of things that come out come out for me from this. One is the issue of class and time and place, which you address, I think, through your choice of artists to a certain extent, and also Nina Power, who writes in a in a postscript in the book, talks about the city and and the regime, the, the democratic regime, as being part of the thing that drives drives addiction to a certain extent. So it strikes me that heroin, as extreme as it is as as, as a drug. It has a very, very particular class and wealth function. As in it works oh, yeah. for some people and it doesn't. And it sort of breaks away from the kind of American history, even of what drugs are popular. Like in the US, the baby boomer generation essentially drives all tastes and all consumption. So they do weed and acid and coke, but but morphine stays throughout. It's it's a nineteenth century onward kind of fascination but within that we have all these beautiful accounts of people like from from the Quincy onwards who do completely fine provided they're supplied with both the drug and some sort of comfort the the first story and and dash Snow, who you just referred to he comes from a perfectly affluent family and there's a a beautiful send off obituary in the new york times in which he he's described as, as ending like a junkie but but doing so in a five star hotel so how, how do we situate addiction, both in your own life, but also in your understanding of how the OxyContin addiction and the epidemics in the US in particular has expanded in the last couple of decades?
1: Well, as I'm a, I'm a millennial, I'm 34, just turned 34, mine was the first generation in which heroin was not specifically, or opiates more broadly, were not a specifically bohemian subcultural Mm. affectation i write about this a little bit in the final chapter but when i was in high school on cape cod smack fucking dab in the middle of the opioid epidemic oxycontin was like the second you know because there's usually like like you said the boomer generation and before that we had this idea of like what is a normal or semi-healthy hmm. route of drug experimentation, which is you smoke pot in high school, maybe you turn 18, you try LSD or mushrooms, you get to college, you do a little X, you do cocaine. It always remains in this sort of experimental setting, yeah. party setting, fun, joy, etc. When I was in high school, it went, you smoked weed and then you snorted Oxycontin. I was 16 the first time I snorted a 40 milligram Oxycontin tablet. And I was actually very skeptical because this romantic notion of drugs lingered. I was like, I don't want to do pharmaceuticals. It sounds horrible. <laughs> but all everyone around me is like, no, these things are awesome. I tried it, uh, threw up everywhere, and then have to admit that I found it very, very pleasurable sort of relieved all my anxiety, all my physical tension, started using it for my cross-country meets and was running the best I ever ran in my life. Uh, All these things. Uh, It was just very normal. So predictably, when you have this flood of opiates, not just being given to patients unlawfully by doctors, Mm -hmm. but being given to drug dealers unlawfully, yeah, the opioid crisis is spiked. And that's kind of what I wanted the book to, like It's the, the book is ever so subtly situated within this world around it. The first generation in history in which opioid addiction is not rare. It is literally mm. as common as alcoholism or anything else. Yeah. It's everywhere. I grew up in Cape Cod. It's a beautiful, beautiful beach town in Massachusetts. And it literally looks apocalyptic in certain zones with all the fentanyl addicts running around and stealing car stereos. Like, this is an absolutely nightmare. 100% handed down from the ruling class to the working class. It's destroyed. You know, I'm sure how many people are still out there terrified of the pandemic? the pandemic has a mortality rate of less than 1%, less than 0.1% for vaccinated people. The opioid epidemic just last year killed over 400,000 people in overdoses. Like it doesn't, mm. the amount of death that has been wrought by this crisis, nothing compares to it. And yet it's still like this thing that we barely, we barely ever mention. Now with that comes the class stuff. Because it is very true. If you Kurt Cobain, who was supposed to be in the book, but we ended up cutting out because it's just too hard to fictionalize someone that famous. Mm -hmm. um, Kurt Cobain has a great quote, which is like, I used to be a junkie. Now I'm a millionaire. The point (laughs) being, like, if you are wealthy, you can, you know, opiates, even heroin specifically are like, They have very low toxicity. So if you have enough money to get your dose right, you can probably stay on for a long time and live healthily. Like, granted, your supply is there. But these drugs were dealt to specifically working-class Americans, even more specifically rural working-class Americans um, who were given these prescriptions. And then, of course, you know, the story is they all get cut off at some point and then turn to heroin. And that went on for quite a long time. And treatment is just like impossible for, no. for working people. You can, you need time off. You need a month off just to, just to get the shit out of your system. And then I think the even bigger tragedy now is I got clean in 2012. And I had all... I mean, I am a petty bourgeois, you know, uh, middle-class Jewish guy. I had help and I got off, but I think even now I read this interview recently where, um, with a scientist whose job is he studies purity of drugs, opiates specifically over the last three years, over 90% of his heroin samples have been at least partly, if not mostly fentanyl and mm. with that i don't i don't think this crisis i'm i start to worry that it'll just never improve because now the you can't even like this is, this sounds like a horrible thing to say but you can't even like do heroin and like achieve that romantic idea of yeah. it anymore you because it's all fentanyl like you'll die eventually you know uh I mean, the book is sort of grounded in these problems, but I was—I didn't want to be too preachy about it. I didn't want to write an activist book. I despise activists. And I wanted to write about these things that definitely have personal meaning to me without being super obvious or political.
2: I wonder, though, to what extent it is possible to not treat these subjects politically, and this is kind of my mantra in most of my interviews, Politics seems to, to me, get absolutely everywhere. I'll give you an example of why I'm thinking about this. I remember seeing two, three years ago, the film Beautiful Boy with Steve Carell and Timothy Scheimer, which is based on a memoir of a father and son, David and Nick Sheff, in which the son teenager gets hooked on drugs and spends years coming and going, coming and going, rehab, uh, coming back to the parental home. And he's one of those people who enjoy completely bourgeois, upper-middle-class existence. And the kind of key moment comes when the young teenage addict is asked in a therapy session what his problem is. And he responds that his problem is the addiction. And the kind of bottled moral judgment that is delivered in response was, no, that's not it, you don't have any problems, therefore you should theoretically, given all the resources be able to overcome the addiction. And it, it really bothered me as an, as an example of just complete lack of empathy for the underlying um, chemical problems. So in a sense, the, the, the final victory in the film, in the story, was portrayed as though it was free of an ethics and free of personal struggle, not at the point of addiction, but the point of recovery. So that sort of leads me to, to think a little bit about the stories that you use in a book being laden with meaning, whether, whether you want them to be political, whether you want them to be activist or not. And maybe a way to think about it is to imagine as a thought exercise, or maybe as a literary exercise, a story of addiction that is, as though in the film, completely devoid of of some kind of moral arc, but is also devoid of redemption. I'm not proposing anything particularly pleasant here, but I, I'd like you to to maybe speculate a little bit on on those those things.
1: Yeah, I would say the reality of like drug culture is often a lot different than it is depicted. You know, mm. like like my experience with opiates didn't look like. Uh, Ewan McGregor and Johnny Lee Miller running Mm. around Edinburgh in fantastic, like acid punk outfits and listening to Iggy Pop and you know, none of
2: that That is a fiction. (laughs) I mean, yeah,
1: yeah. Um, my experience was well, one of two things it was I was either alone, alone a lot, actually, Mm -hmm. in my room, uh, buried. Inside myself, I can't say that was entirely unproductive because I did read a lot and I listened to a lot of music and I watched a lot of movies. And then the other side of that experience was, you know, with scum like absolute I don't want to sound too crude here, but like with total street scum, you know, that's what opiate addiction actually looks like it's suffering people. And it's 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 very hard to glamorize or aestheticize what like a mass addiction problem looks like. Even though I think I think there should be stories about it's just very unfashionable to address the reality of opiate addiction, which is that the the worst excesses of the crisis have transpired in rural Trump country, the exact mm. kind of people that the prevailing liberal order openly despises. Yeah. I mean, like, it's not even veiled; They hate these people as openly as, uh, I'd say every bit as openly as, you know, black Americans were despised by the Southern ruling order in the mm. 1960s. So when, when, when this like these miseries sort of like don't jive with the common narrative, uh, you know the narrative is that these people are backwards, that they're quote unquote chuds. I think it becomes very easy to disregard the hmm. true crisis in this country. Maybe that would be like a maybe there could be like a great show about opioid crisis stuff in in rural countries with like real people. But I don't know, just the idea, like the reality of this stuff is like, it's not like some Baudelaire looking poet that is like an opiate addicted right now. It's basically some guy who works in a lumber yard and initially started taking pills to like, because his knee hurt. You know, it's it's just a hard thing to aestheticize. And then the fact that the people who actually like own arts and publishing are so openly contemptuous of these subjects. I don't know how to get around that necessarily.
2: Well, Nina Power in her closing essay talks about OxyContin as being a kind of class warfare mechanism. and um, it's,
1: it's a also- direct warfare.
2: I'm still trying to bring together... Somehow bridge the kind of wider societal effects of the drugs, and your relationship to the particular artists that you that you've chosen. So the book is called Communion's. These are quite transparently your your fantasies of these ten ten artists. Yeah. Could you maybe talk a little bit about your relationship to them as characters, as fantasies, and and what they what they mean in a kind of wider sense?
1: First of all, everyone in this book even the ones that I'm a bit hard on, such as Dash Snow, I really love. That had to be like the first, that had to be the first thing is I had to have a deep appreciation for their work. The second thing was these were, I think this is a very common subjective experience is when you're engaging with an artwork that you really love. It's so normal to like, Fantasize about who made this stuff or who they are or what they're doing or where they are, etc. and that was the thing and that's the one thing that I'm like super proud of with this book is however strong it is or not, I do think it's like a very unique way to write and I do think it's like a novel idea. But by using addiction specifically and using this like personal subjective experience that I had with opiates, I feel it became a kind of portal or a window. Uh, It was a method of of knowing like their, if not their direct experience, but maybe how they felt about it. I just Mm -hmm. felt it was a way of rooting me in who they are. So even though it's all fictional and it's not real, I do feel like there is an effort there to, through connection, find what made them tick or whatever. And in every chapter, I think there's a way of, I think there's uh, an effort to understand what it was about them personally that made them susceptible to opiate addiction. Because not everybody is. Some people can try a drug and never do it again, or mm-hmm. or do it time to time and never let it overtake their life. But all these people became daily users. So what was it about them? For someone like Modigliani, it's very simple. He had a body that was racked with physical illness and it mm-hmm. allowed him to work. It allowed him to hold on to a sense of vigor. And someone with Zoe Lund, for instance, And by the way, Zoe Lund, just if anybody doesn't know, she is an actress from Abel Ferrara's film Ms. 45. She also wrote the script for Bad Lieutenant. And check out her website archive. She was an absolutely incredible poet and writer, super underrated, and honestly, like you can make connections with someone like Kathy Acker and her, but I actually hmm. feel like her, her work was a little less academic and like more focused on beauty. I'll, I'll put but links Zo- to
2: information about all these people in the, in the show notes.
1: Absolutely. That'd be great. So Zoe Lund had a very different experience, which is like, she was this soup. She was very deluded about her addiction Yeah. to her. Heroin was this like state of beauty. And she didn't understand why she wasn't allowed to experience that state of perfection mm. and beauty. She even advocated for heroin as a medicinal substance. this is not a hundred years ago. This is in the 90s, yeah, yeah, yeah. she would like write op eds for the New York Times saying like heroin saved her life, etc. So of course, it's even more sad that she did have mm. been inevitably overdose. So, yeah, in all these chapters, there's like these things, of like, what was it about these people that made them so sort of vulnerable to addiction? And I do think there's like good effort made to hmm. to get there. You know, Dash, of course, Dash No is, of course, a very interesting experience, too, which is that he was this sort of fascinating street kid who used a lot of drugs, and then the art world fetishized him and marketed him as this sort of whimsical, fucked up, you know, rich kid, fail son, rich kid. And in playing that part, he, you know, he was bound to it and inevitably exhausted him, you know.
2: So, well, to take you a little bit off the hook um, from the, the accusation of romanticization any further, I want to ask you about the relationship between this kind of writing and the kind of more formal art criticism that you had engaged in previously. 100%. I mean, it strikes me that one of the values of the book is that they do offer an insight into how you read the persona of the artist, and it's not uncritical, and it is connected to the the artistic products of these individuals.
1: Well, the book is definitely partly art criticism. and, And conversely, a lot of the art criticism that I write also works as speculative fiction um there are flourishes of fictional exaggeration in everything that i write a lot of times i actually get criticism from like annoying leftist commenters on safety propaganda saying that i got such and such fact wrong or here's this data that's not that's not the way that i'm writing i think of everything i do as part of one cohesive practice blending different elements i suppose theory fiction or speculative fiction is the best way to describe uh, the genre that I work in now also communions also did have this kind of like practical element to it, which is that I wanted to bridge together my work in fiction and experimental text with the art criticism that I had already gotten semi known for. And the next book after this will be a novel that I'm outlining now and planning on pitching out in like December or so. Brilliant! Can you can you tell us anything about that? I will just say that it'll enrage a lot of people. Well, brilliant! Um,
2: <laughs> that would have been my closing closing question normally, but it's one one more thing I want to ask you about, which is to do. I mean, slightly fo- formally to do with the title of Communion's and something that, again, in her essay and in, in your book, Nina Power proposes, which is the erosion of the ritual f- uh, function of, of drugs and the communal experience. Now, I, I don't know that heroin beyond the you know, Opium Eater's Den has much of a history of communal experience, but so, so beyond your, your writing style, like how, how do we put ourselves in the room with any of these people or any, any people that we might, might want to commune with?
1: The title of the book um, was really hard, to narrow down on, I'll just say that went through so many titles. Now, then I inevitably came up with this idea of uh, I wanted to call it Dia Communion's because Dia is the prefix mm. for diamorphine, which translates yeah. as heroin. And then my editor was like, "Nah, <laughs> yeah. no, no, no. <laughs> that's too little, too <laughs> obvious. Little too obvious. <laughs> uh, why not just communion?" because the book is very much like it is this sort of mental communion with the dead. You know, the book is like, what I think is kind of interesting. It's like, I'm very into Samuel Beckett and Arthur McKen and and, and Lovecraft. Like, And I do think this book has this just slightly uncanny sense of a ghost story to it. There's lots of calling back or calling out to something that, we can't actually see. So I'm communing with the spirit of these dead artists who I admire and love using shared experience as the method of conjuring them, so to speak. As far as like the limit experience is concerned, I do think generally that Nina is 100% correct that our relationship to chemicals has gotten... More damaging than it has been prior. And this isn't just opiates, this is all drugs. LSD, mushrooms, these things, we've primarily known them for as like what, you know, to, to achieve what Pataille would call a limit experience, to take ourselves to the edge of human experience, see things, understand the world in these new ways. But Silicon Valley, Instead, creates this idea of microdosing, which is very much to just optimize your technocratic job performance and therefore neuters the sacred drugs, any kind of inner awakening experience that they might hold. I think this applies to opiates as well, because heroin especially used to be this drug that, you know, if you were using it. You know you were about to enter into the state of like hard drug use, mm. you know, so there was at least this understanding like I'm about to do a drug that I've been told my entire life I shouldn't do, but i'm willing i i wanna i wanna feel this and I'm willing to do it so there was an understanding of the risk attached now opiates are so normalized mm. that People are just sort of they're getting these like script prescriptions from a doctor. The pill makes the knee pain go away. they go to work and they get their job done and they go home uh, All these drugs are just being integrated into the world to way in a way to optimize markets to optimize job performance to turn us ever more into drones and Slaves to labor, they're reducing us of our humanities, and they're tools used by the ruling class to further subjugate, humiliate, and demoralize everyday people. So, just finish right there with a happy thought. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well Adam, that might well be an appropriate moment to end. You're right. Um, I think optimism's overrated. So for now I'm just going to say thank you very much for your work, for your book, and for your time with us.
1: Pierre, thank you so much for having me on the show. It was a great chat. And everybody, by communions, make me rich. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: Communions by Adam Lerre is published by Hapredictine Press. I'm Pierre Delancey, and the editor is Marshall Poe. Thank you for listening, and join us next time.